Hello and welcome to another episode of Law and More. My name is Kate Ryan. I'm a family law partner at IBB Law. And in this episode, I'm going to be talking to Michelle Hoskin, who is director and founder of Standards International. We are going to be talking about a really important topic, financial control and economic abuse. So Michelle, tell us a little bit about yourself. With pleasure. So I'm Michelle Hoskin, um, as you've introduced me, the founder and director of an organisation called Standards International. Effectively, Standards International is a standards certification body um, operating mainly in the financial services and professional services sector. Um, It's been a business that's been uh, my baby, I suppose, a a real passion project for me over the last 25 years. Um, And more recently, we've got more involved in training and coaching financial planners and advisors um, and other professional advisors in the area of financial abuse and economic harm. Um, a real um, key point, a real key area that's um, definitely becoming much more mainstream now um, over the recent um, few years, particularly triggered by, obviously, the COVID um, you know, experience that we all had as, you know, as, as, as families. Um, yeah. So perhaps the first place to start is to talk about what financial control and economic abuse is. Certainly from my perspective, dealing with domestic abuse and coercive control and all the umbrella um, headings that that covers dealing with my clients, financial control is something that falls under the category of coercive control. It is where uh, a person prevents somebody access to funds, uh, restricts the amount of money that they have to to buy things, takes away any access to any funds that they may have and uses this in a really nasty and manipulative way to control them. There are specific definitions of coercive control, but I think because we're talking about the specific element of financial control, let's just focus on practically what that means how it affects people, who it affects, and what there is out there to try and raise awareness and help victims of coercive control, specifically financial control. And Michelle, given what you do in your business, um, perhaps you could talk to us a little bit about your experience of dealing with the area of financial control, um, the vulnerabilities that you see in people and how you, you consider this needs to be dealt with. Uh, absolutely. I think, um, I think, if we actually think about it, you know, not in a professional capacity, but I think if we actually think about it from us just being people and we looked into our family groups, our friendship groups, I think actually if we thought about it and almost, you know, really just looked inside, we would probably, even if we weren't sure, we would be able to spot and have a an inkling or a, a gut instinct that there was some form of control happening in many of the relationships and friendships that we even might have as you know as as, as women right so I think um, what I would say is I think you know my linking kind of back to you know why I even got involved in this because I think that sort of sets the scene to you know talk more about you know my experiences but you know I have this real passion that as an as an individual that everybody has the as the I suppose the permission and the that they should have the everything that's potentially there at their disposal to thrive as a human I think life is so short and you know, one of the things that saddens me greatly is when any person, male or female, they have their um, their ability to be economically, you know, empowered or economically in control or economically thriving taken away from them by a, by a perpetrator in this case. 
So I think, you know, we all have that um, that privilege. We should all have that privilege and that ability to, to thrive in our lives. And effectively, financial control, as you just said there, Kate, is where somebody else, a perpetrator, so let's call that person B, you know, uses money, you know, the, their, their power, you know, money is power. And when they use that to, to exert control over person A, um, it can be terribly detrimental. And we all know, you know, I've spent a lot of my years working in financial services and professional services that we know that money makes the world go round, you know, and, and money gives us power. And the second that somebody either restricts our access to it, you know, sabotages what we have or prevents us from or exploits our, you know, economic power, our financials, you know, it's it's devastating because without that, we are almost powerless. You know, without money, without access to what we need, we are, we are all pa- absolutely powerless. And that is why it is such an important area and why the changes in the Domestic Abuse Act, you know, those those big legal changes, which I'm sure we'll talk about today, you know, they're going to make a massive impact. So I think, you know, we all have our, our need to be economically stable, economically empowered, um, to buy, you know, at basic level, the things that we need, you know, clothing, you know, housing, food, um, and, you know, whether we'll touch on the whole economic crisis is one point, but, you know, if that's done deliberately by a perpetrator, you know, person B, um, you know, like I say, it can be it can be absolutely, de- you know, devastating. Given that you've just raised the Domestic Abuse Act, I think perhaps it's a, a good point to talk about that. Um, the Domestic Abuse Act is relatively new. And the most important thing about this piece of legislation is that it does deal with financial control and coercive control. Uh, effectively, what the Act does is it makes coercive control a crime. And the Act goes much, much further than just providing definitions and making people aware of um, what this particular form of behaviour is. It also sets down some fundamental principles for society um, uh, about how important it is to have people in charge of certain areas in society to make sure that victims are dealt with properly, both through the justice system and ongoing. So when their relationship ends, for example, it flags up how important important it is to have uh, people in government that deal solely with this area of coercive control and domestic abuse. And there's lots, lots more to that piece of legislation that we could have a whole podcast on. But ultimately, linking it back into the financial control arena, what it means is that there is a definition of coercive control. Financial control comes under that. It is a criminal offence. And it means that somebody that is a victim of financial control has some form of sanction. There are consequences to uh, perpetrators' actions. The issue, certainly in my field and what I see, is that it's very difficult to piece all of these things together to actually put forward a case within the justice system. But it is getting better, and I see firsthand from judges in the court system that they are becoming a lot more aware of coercive control and financial abuse, and that these are patterns of behaviours that actually, as you said, really, really impact a person's life. And financial control is one aspect of that. I think just it might be a really good point also as an extension of that to just talk about the difference between abuse and harm because I know there's an awful lot of stigma around you know because obviously you know economic abuse economic you know coercive control falls under the, the sort of de- the, the definition of domestic abuse and by nature the term abuse can be quite scary um, for you know both potential perpetrators or perpetrators but equally for victim survivors also 
And we've done quite a bit of work, um, as other organisations have, around the difference between abuse and harm. And I think if anyone's listening to this, you know, almost thinking that abuse is about a physical or sexual act or a, a violent act, you know, harm may be a way of almost not softening the seriousness of the subject, but actually um, making it a little bit more easier to digest from a conversation perspective or from just an acceptance. You know, you know, you asked me before about some of the, you know, the experiences. Well, you know, I had a, I, I recorded a podcast a few years ago and the guy that was interviewing me you know I was on screen with him and the whole way through he's literally like staring at me like I was just I'd been teleported from outer space honestly and when the podcast had finished he was like oh my god Michelle he's like I've my my brother's doing it to his to his wife and he literally had absolutely no idea and it was only because of the you know the things that I was explaining the characteristics of behavior and he said but God, he said, if I ever went to him and said, you know, you're abusing your wife, he said, all hell would break loose. He said, but harm is a perfect word. And he said, I'm going to speak to him and say, you know, I think you're putting your wife in economic harm, in financial harm. And then he told me afterwards that he'd had this conversation with him and that the brother had no idea that he was even doing it. Like he wasn't a narcissist. He he was just a guy who had just got over over careful with money, you know, super controlling, but not through nastiness, but just through care. And I think that's an important point as well. You know, control versus care. You know, there's a there's a I'm super caring about my family, and then there's using finances to control, and that's that's the very fine line, which is often overstepped. I think. Yes, I completely agree with that. And that is an important distinction because obviously, um, like you say, abuse is something that is intentional mostly, isn't it? And certainly with coercive control um, behaviour, financial control, um, any form of controlling behaviour, which has the um, effect on the victim of demeaning them, belittling them, um, limiting, like you said right at the beginning, limiting their life and their ability to thrive. From my perspective as a family lawyer, this is always an intentional step. Absolutely. An act of uh, control and often does relate back to certain personality types. And the difficulty within the family law system of dealing with this type of behaviour is trying to make a case that will be successful from an injunctive perspective and or a criminal perspective if it is very serious. And that is something that the Domestic Abuse Act will help with. And I think it's pretty obvious from my perspective that financial institutions, um, there is lots of advertising in all sorts of media at the moment um, and has been for quite some time about how important and sadly how common coercive control, financial control actually is. Yeah. Yeah, and I think um, I think it's interesting, you know. And I talk to my parents. I mean, my parents are like, you know, six late sixties, and when I use the word abuse, you know, they they instantly think of physical, 
And I think what's really important about, I mean, there's lots of stats floating around. You only have to Google economic harm and there's stats in, you know, on, online just popping up at you all the time. But I think a couple of things that are important. I think, you know, they, they, there's a certain surveys that, you know, say that 33% of, you know, those experiencing some sort of financial control, that control started at the beginning, beginning of the pandemic. So early 2020. And I think that's important. And that's that, that's that differential between control and, and care, right? I think the other key point, particularly in the work that you do during separation and divorce, is that I don't physically have to be in the same room as you to effectively, A, coercively control you or financially put you in any harm or abuse you. I physically have to be in the room if I'm going to exert you know, physical abuse over you. And that's why it's so horrendous, because there's absolutely no escape from the perpetrator for this form of abuse. It, it's horrific. And I think the other point of it is, is that you know, it can go on for years and years and years. I mean, I, I was chatting to a lady that, you know, she'd been a victim for 35 years. And she actually probably only realised it in her 34th year that it was actually a form of abuse because it had become normal. She'd found herself making excuses for her husband, covering for him, you know, at dinner parties, almost excusing him from his behaviour. He'd had a busy day or, you know, and this is, these are some of the signs that actually, you know, from a victim survivor's perspective, that there could be something wrong. But deep down, I believe that a, a lot of the time we have this sixth sense, you know, we all have it that gut instinct that you know this feels wrong but we we all do it we all brush it under the carpet oh it's just me having a bad day or whatever but we need to listen to ourselves much more and I think we would spot that in our friends and our family groups and in you know friends that are going through you know separation in the areas that you help them in yes I can relate to that as well when speaking to clients that perhaps don't realize they're in yeah. these controlling relationships yeah versus clients that have come to that realization and moving them forward from that. And I think that's an area uh, that I also share your passion in because when I see clients going through the traumatic time of dealing with a separation or a divorce, as well as dealing with an element of financial control or coercive control, it doesn't just end the moment that the relationship ends. No. It's ongoing because of what they may have suffered throughout the relationship and because of you as you've alluded to, it can carry on after yeah. the relationship. So just because that person is removed from yeah. the relationship doesn't mean that the control stops. And that's another important thing about the legislation that's come in. And I think the amount of awareness that's being raised in the media because of what's going on in the world, that people do realise that. And there needs yeah. to be protection in place um, for those people that can't just leave, shut the front door, off they go. And they are sort of, um, you know, they're they're able to then from it. be free because <laughs> they're not. Yeah, I think I think also I think it comes down to this: um, the reason that that form of control is so powerful is because what a, what a perpetrator does is they use it, whether it be during a relationship or post a relationship, to reduce and limit the space for control. So if you remove the things that I need, I become dependent. I become submissive to the perpetrator's control. And that's where the coerciveness and just just while we're on that sort of point, because we've mentioned the word coercive control quite a bit already, you know, what you mentioned the word sort of recurring. So if there's a single event, it probably wouldn't be deemed as coercive control. It's a single event. It's where there's a repeatable pattern of anything 
is where coercion comes in, right? And that can be, you know, through emotional, you know, the words that somebody uses with somebody, whether they restrict or do something to do with money um, or the physicalness. It's it's reducing a person's space for action um, and ultimately to be, to, to create them to be a subordinate, a, a subordinate, a submissive to a more dominant party. And, and many use money to do that. And, you know, and, and any time there's a bond of children, you know, property business um you know i i was in directly interviewing a financial um actually a, a chartered financial planner super qualified this lady i mean a successful businesswoman in her own right you know and she said you know i was a victim for 15 years of financial control and she said and when i went to court eventually the judge i mean this oh, thank i hope this would never ever happen today and this was like you know 15 years ago and she said the judge said to her at the time you know of all people you should know better right and you know she has she's now dealing with PTSD as a result of the fact that her partner effectively over the duration of their relationship put her into a constant state of fight and flight and effectively what PTSD is is a person's inability to come out of that state so you're going to be dealing with people daily who have had horrendous marital breakdowns potentially male or female that are actually suffering from PTSD and they have to deal with that first before they can actually get their head around even going through that process. So I think it's it's brutal. But the question you asked me earlier, which was, you know, who does this affect? Anybody that breathes. It can affect children. You know, I've heard of stories where, you know, you've got a, a, a mum and dad separating with older children. There's family wealth, you know, and the children are a victim of financial control because the mum or the dad is saying, well, I'm going to cut you out of the will if you go and live with your mum. Or I'm going to cut you out of the business estate or the family estate or whatever if you go and live with your dad. I mean, it's horrific because we all know that money allows us to thrive. So it's any gender, it's any culture, it's any age. It's it gen. I mean, there are it peaks and troughs in certain areas. Um, and I read um, a piece a little while back where, and this was almost, I suppose, you know, we 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 believe or we think, and this is a stigma that sits with it, is that you know it's those who are, you know, I'm going to use the poor housewife kind of analogy, but we know what I mean, like the vulnerable that is vulnerable. And I read this whole article on the fact that you know also, which is not necessarily as high, but women with economic power of their own are often targets of financial control and economic harm because effectively and that can be from a man a woman coming from whoever could be from a business partner right could be from anybody because effectively let's say I'm the economically financially can you know powerful woman they want what I have or they have they want what I'm able to continually generate so you know this there's horrendous some of the stories I mean they're just awful I mean, you've you experience in them daily, probably. I sadly have seen lots of really traumatised people that have been in really coercive and controlling situations and relationships, um, some of which have formed financial control has been part of, of that behaviour. And uh, other than the fact that it's really awful to hear about, I think what really impacts me as well is just how much it affects their ability to thrive and live and their confidence, yeah. their ability to parent, all of the things that you've rightly raised. And so as a family lawyer, I sort of take it on board as part of my um, responsibility 
is yes, I'm there to advise them about the law and what their options are in any given situation. But likewise, I need to be able to also point them in the right direction for those other resources that are available to them that can also support them on this relatively mammoth journey of being able to extricate themselves from this relationship, make really vital decisions about what they now need to do, both in terms of their finances, in terms of their their housing, their parenting, all of those things that at that point in time, let alone the fact that they've probably been knocked down to, you know, a fraction of their former self, they need to start thinking about and make decisions on. Um, And that is not really um, anything that us as lawyers are able to do, but it's really, really important that we have around us a network of good people that we can refer these clients to that can also hold their hand on the journey and give them the the support that they need. Yeah, it's, it's it's absolutely vital. You use the point just briefly there about, you know, depleting resources. I remember sharing on social media, I picked it up from social media a while back, and it was basically a picture of a frog in a big vat of water. And, you know, the sort of the tail that went alongside that post was, if you put a frog into a a vat of cold water and turn the temperature up, by the time the water is boiling, the frog has depleted its own resources. It has no resources in order to get itself out of that vat of water. However, if you put a frog into a vat of boiling water, it would try and jump out. And that, that in a sort of an analogy, is, is coercive control. And you imagine that with, with the money. Um, I think just going back to one of the points you just picked up on, you know, I chatted to a, a lady who was part of a charity. And she was telling me a story about a lady who was from the sidelines, from the outside, was living in a very affluent life. You know, children in private school, beautiful big house, drive around in a posh car. Um, And this particular lady had eventually reached out to a charity, you know, domestic violence charity, and said, you know, um, I I need some help. But the story she told was that she'd actually been to see, um, first of all, a lawyer, um, to find out what her rights were and the lawyer because she was lacking confidence the, the lawyer missed all the signs literally I, I can imagine they were blaringly obvious but the lawyer missed them she then went to see a financial advisor so the lawyer could, didn't help couldn't help said you know we can help you you know when he sold some of his businesses well even if he sold all of his businesses she was never going to see a penny of the money anyway and he would fight her for it through divorce right um, then she went to see a financial advisor a highly qualified financial advisor who who actually said to her, and for any financial advisors that are listening to this will know exactly what I mean when I say this, um, he said to her, um, well, we can help you when the time is right. Effectively, we can help you when you have some money to either invest. And three weeks later, she took her own life and she left two beautiful boys, you know, you know, the impact of on hundreds of people of her taking her own life. And she went to two professionals, neither of which could help her and didn't help her. And this poor lady is now dead. I mean, it's horrendous. And I, and I think there are uber amounts of stories like that. And that's why the professionals and, and effectively what, what we're actually talking about in, in the truest form, Kate, is creating um, a coordinated, what's called a coordinated community response. And that's not just about the charities helping victims and perpetrators, you know, as well, but, but also the wider professional advisors, lawyers, accountants, life coaches, management consultants, banks, building societies, you know name it anybody that comes into contact with humans um, who are advising them in some capacity of what to do with their life and I think you know we've all got a huge duty of care I mean I went on a a TV show not long ago 
and the interviewer was being, I think, a little bit controversial with me. And he said, you know, why should, you know, professional advisors care? You know, what's it got to do with financial advisors? And I said to him, it's got something to do with everybody. Everybody. Me as a sister, as a daughter, as a friend everybody and I think that's what's that's what's absolutely key and it's this coordinated community response to this as a horrific form of of domestic abuse and violence. Thanks Michelle so finally just to end we need to talk about some of the signs that we might see or one might see if they're talking to a family member or a friend or in a professional situation that might make them think this person is a victim of financial control specifically between 80 and 95 percent of those who are victim survivors of other forms of domestic abuse physical sexual and emotional you know 95 percent of them are, are in a financially controlling relationship so I think it's quite a tricky one to say to somebody these are the signs of financial control but what I will definitely say is that if you can spot other things in ni- up to 95% of cases, you're also going to uncover financial control. So I think that's key. Those sorts of behaviours will be things like somebody not being able to make a decision about yeah. what they wear, where they go, uh, yeah. being worried and anxious all the time about what their partner or or, or the other person is, is, is doing or, yeah. or where they are perhaps constantly feeling like they've got to um, check in with that person or they're being checked in on by the other person when they're out socially. I certainly see um, in clients that come to see me in these types of relationships, they're constantly justifying um, their behaviours, almost (laughs) like they're doing doing something wrong um, when it's a perfectly reasonable step for them to have taken and they justify it on the basis like you alluded to earlier that, oh, it's probably because I... I've had a bad day or I was a bit tired. Yeah. So, um, and going back to your your statement about having a gut feeling, sometimes, and I think this does come with experience, certainly within my area, you do get a gut feeling about a situation and I think you go with that gut feeling and that usually you are correct. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think a couple to add to those signs, Kate, I think, you know, um, a, a depletion in personal care, um, you know, I'm not saying the word downtrodden particularly, but you know when, you know, you might see somebody who was always really smart, took care of their appearance, and you can slowly see that that, that care for themselves, that self-care, because um, often what victim survivors do is self-sabotage. They almost almost deplete. Um, so, for example, in the cases of things like um, sexual violence and, and domestic abuse, they actually make themselves look unattractive so that they don't draw attention to themselves um also another one would be constantly cancelling um you know not being not being as reliable um, and in the workplace particularly I think employers have a a huge duty to really keep an eyeball on what's going on within their team because you know if the stats are right one in four women are a victim of you know financial abuse economic harm and, and one in seven so you have to think about how many people are you having your own team and my own team you know the stats are going to stack up so I think it's some some depletion of behaviour, you know, underperformance, like you say, you know, not turn not turning up, you know, not being very reliable, making excuses, and almost almost a a, a constant anx- anxiousness, like a, a, almost a shake, you know, like a, a un- unsettled. I think is I think is a, a, all the signs as well. 
Um, and I think, you know, your gut instinct piece is right. And I think if any of us do, you know, even if it's not in a professional capacity, you know, if you're speaking to a friend or a family member, you know, the way that I would advise that you approach it or anybody would approach it would be you would say to somebody, um, you know, let's use a little dialogue between you and I, for example. Um, Kate, you know when um, Brian or whoever it might be, you know when Brian, um, you know, almost wants you to you know, really like, you know, fess up what you've spent in a day, right? Um, that makes me feel really, un- like really sad for you. Um, does that happen a lot? So what I've just done is I've said, um, I've seen what I've seen, um, how I feel, and then I've asked a question. I've not accused, I've not blamed, I've not um, pointed my finger. It's been very calm. It's been, and then if, and then if she said, no, you said to me, um, no, 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 that doesn't, you know, he's very busy, you know, straight away, you know, I know that you've got instantly gone into defense mode. So I'm like, oh, interesting. Well, does he do that a lot? Or even if he does it a lot, are you okay with that? So it's almost a very unthreatening, um, very soft, um, I've left all my own frames of reference and my own views, you know, to one side, even if I hate this person and I can see what they're doing, I've approached it in a very calm caring way and I think the key thing is and you know what I would definitely be teaching people to do is you know is almost say to that person well that's okay you know if if, if you I'm, I'm just saying you what I feel and I'm telling you what I what I've seen um but if you ever want to talk about it I am always here to listen without any judgment at all and I think sometimes softening that sentence, because people will train and say, you know, you must say without any judgment. I think it's a bit formal, you know, depends on the circumstances of the conversation. But I would say, you know, Kate, I will, I'll always be here for you to listen, to talk without any judgment at all. You know, you only have to pick the phone up and I'm here. Then you have to leave it, unfortunately, unless that person, um, you know, really does, you know, be able to confide in a person, into you, whoever's asking the question. But what I would say is if anybody believes that anybody is in any immediate danger, then it's an it's an immediate phone call to the police. You know, I think you know, any any risk of death or injury, it becomes a criminal matter, then it's then into dangerous territory. But I think there is a softer way to approach it. And that, that is that's how I would definitely would definitely broach it. And in terms of signposting those individuals, obviously, there's a whole raft of charities, professional organisations, hopefully, um, people like myself in the yeah. legal profession that also are aware and experienced about reading some of these behaviors people like yourself within the financial world where would you signpost somebody that came to you specifically to say Michelle this has been happening I don't really know what to do well I think there's a couple of places I mean part of the work that we're doing is we created a um, a financial abuse certification because we wanted to train, and this this is what got me into the space in the first place, is we wanted to train lawyers, accountants, professional advisors within this coordinated community response um, to be able to go through the training and evidence that they had a certain level of skill and ability and expertise. And they would be able to demonstrate on their company logos and their letterheads the financial abuse certification um, certification mark. I think there's also, um, which yet hasn't really taken hold, it's not fully launched, um, but it will soon be, is the new consumer vulnerability um, ISO standard. And, um, you know, 
particularly even the conversations that we've been having about it from IBB's perspective. Um, but I think, you know, those organisations that demonstrate and can display that they have an understanding of consumers' vulnerabilities is a great place to seek out services, whether they've got the financial abuse certification and or the consumer vulnerability, you know, mark of excellence. Um, and then sort of in the more general sphere, um, you've got an amazing charity called Surviving Economic Abuse. Um, and Dr. Nicola Sharp-Jeffs is the founder of that charity and has been pioneering in this specific area of economic and financial harm and abuse um, for several years now. And the work that they're doing, they had a huge impact on the domestic Abuse Act, um, remarkable charity, um, and there are others that sit around it. Um, that you know, they're all they're all much more tuned in now to this whole piece around money used as a controlling mechanism um, because it's it gives power and it can equally remove all power, and that's why. Um, and, and it's silent. Let's be honest. You know, it's not a physical form of abuse. It's totally silent and it's totally behind closed doors, um, and it impacts everybody that you know in any walks of life. Thanks, Michelle. That's a great note to leave this episode on. Pleasure. I can't imagine doing anything else. This is such an important subject and one that we can all play a huge part in. And just for those that are listening that may be experiencing any form of coercive control or financial abuse, any type of abuse within a relationship. Do feel free to contact either myself or Michelle or any of the uh, charities and organisations that we've mentioned in today's podcast. Thanks again for listening to Law & More. Goodbye. Goodbye.